DNB Tech Minute gives you the day's top tech headlines, from the big names in Silicon Valley to the halls of power. If it's making news in tech, we've got it. Check out TNB Tech Minute in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from The Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks for joining us. If you're not already, please become a subscriber at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a nice review. My guest this week is Jared Kushner. Jared, of course, spent four years serving as senior advisor to the president in the White House of Donald Trump, his father-in-law. He was closely involved in many of the Trump administration's major policymaking initiatives, especially the negotiation of the Abraham Accords, the historic deal that produced normalization of relations between Israel and several Arab countries. He was also key in the Trump administration's response to the COVID pandemic, some international economic initiatives, including the negotiation of USMCA, the trade deal with Canada and Mexico, and criminal justice reform. He's out with a book that chronicles all this. It's called Breaking History, a White House memoir, and Jared Kushner joins me now. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jerry. It's great to be with you. Thanks for being here. Breaking History, you've picked a very apt title. I was thinking of your father-in-law. President Trump is a highly controversial figure in many ways, but the one thing that probably his supporters and opponents, probably the single thing they agree on, is that he did kind of break history. He broke the mold in all kinds of ways. The title of the book captures that, I think, very well. As you look at that period and all of the tumult and all of the controversy. What was it you think above all else about the disruption of the Trump presidency that you look back or that you think about with most satisfaction or most pride? So there's a lot of things, but I'm very proud of all the results that he achieved economically and from a security point of view. So when I think of the job of a leader, I think the job is number one, to keep their people safe. And then number two, to give them opportunity for prosperity. And so if you go back to 2019, before the pandemic, the wealth gap in the country was shrinking, real wages were rising, jobs in America were at historic high, unemployment was at a low, gas prices were low, we were energy independent as a country, and a lot of the trade deals that we made were just about to start kicking in as well. And then we started making peace deals in the world as well, you know, first present in a long time with no new wars. So, you know, one of the, the reasons I wrote this book was that there was so much fascination about the Trump presidency, and, and we can talk about breaking norms. And I do think, again, not being a career politician, being a businessman, being results-driven, being an outsider, people who are not from Washington coming into Washington, and then what they encounter in terms of resistance, but then also how they assess everything, learn on the job, and then also navigate and get a lot of things done. So people covered a lot of what I would call above the water, all the controversies and the investigations and the tweets and the, the words and all the things that were non-traditional But people didn't spend enough time writing about all the things that got done. And more importantly, I want people to know how they got done. And so for people who followed the Trump presidency very closely, which was basically everyone in the world, I felt like this book was a very important contribution to write to show people what was actually happening inside the White House, where, quite frankly, again, I saw the media try to cover it every day, but I was just shocked by how many things they just got wrong over and over again. I want to get into all of that and to the key moments in your memoir and the key moments in the Trump administration. But Trump is always in the news. He's back in the news. Over the last month, this controversy over the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago and the ongoing investigation related to presidential records. You've known, obviously, Donald Trump a long time. You spent that four years in the administration with him. You know about his, some people describe his slightly erratic uh, record-keeping practices. Why would the president take top secret documents away from the White House and have them at his 
residents in Mar-a-Lago. What was that about? Yeah. So uh, again, I'm sure he'll answer that. What he's been saying is that he was taking a lot of documents for his presidential library, which he hoped to have. You know, a lot of the correspondence was very important memories that he wanted at some point to display and share with the public. But in terms of, you know, Trump and anyone who knows him knows that, you know, his residence, his office was always filled with boxes. You know, he was always reading things and, you know, he'd save this and then come back to it here and there. And so I, I don't know, you know, to what degree he packed up boxes or the GSA packed up boxes and sent it down. And I, it just feels to me like, again, for six years, and I started my book about how we go to Washington and then the FBI is starting to investigate our campaign and then they're investigating us for colluding with Russia. For six years, there's basically been just nonstop investigations, often in search of crimes. And then there's the leak to the media, which is like a half fact. And then they take and they run with it like it's the biggest story. This happened to me several times. I write in my book about how I have a meeting with the Russian ambassador during the transition to essentially discuss what their position is on Syria and ISIS, right? America worked so hard to get Russia out of the Middle East under the Obama administration. They became big players in the Middle East. And so we had to coordinate. So I meet with the Russian ambassador, with then General Michael Flynn, who was the incoming national security advisor. And then three months later, I read in the Washington Post that I asked for some secret back channel to the Russians, which by the way, if that were true, would have disproven the fact that we actually had colluded with them. But nobody cared to keep score on that because it didn't fit with their narrative. It's kind of just the same thing that's played out over and over. And so I just feel like it's very important with these things to always wait till you get real facts and see what the situation is. Trump himself describes this as for the part of the witch hunt, the kind of the vendetta that he thinks is being pursued against him by the FBI and the Justice Department. You know, I had very strong words about them at the weekend. Do you think that's what it is? As you say, you know, just another example of the state sort of somehow being out to get him? So I'm naturally somebody who wants to trust these institutions. But after everything I've lived through, and, and again, what I write about in the book, it becomes easier to accept his point of view on that, right? You think about how first they falsified affidavits to get FISA applications to spy on the campaign. You're reading about now how you know they were suppressing information or warning Facebook not to publish information and then suppressing an investigation during the last campaign. And then they raid his home, which again, seems like it was a way overreaction. If it really was about these documents, then it seems like they should have been able to get them themselves. And also the act of the raid now is every reporter trying to figure out what was in those documents. So I think it dramatically increased the risk, assuming these were classified documents of it coming out. And so I don't know. And then the next day, President Biden gets up there and gives this really divisive and nasty speech, basically saying that anyone, you know, all 75 million people who voted for Trump are threats to democracy because they don't agree with him. So there is a pattern here that's really disturbing. I, I do think there is a lot of tons of amazing agents that I worked with, but there was a handful of people at the top who were fairly corrosive, very political, and they caused a lot of trauma to the country over the last four years. And it just seems from recent news accounts, like there may still be some of those people there. And so it's just hard to feel perfectly convinced that everything's on the up and up just based on six years of them basically investigating him and promising that you know he's done everything wrong in the book and then constantly coming up with nothing. But I want to come back to some of the issues about Donald Trump's future, in particular his election later, but let's get on to your book and to the administration. One of the things you say quite early on in the book, particularly in discussion about foreign policy, which you were intimately involved in a lot of things, you say, and I quote, part of what ultimately made Trump successful in his foreign policy objectives was that leaders found him 
unpredictable in some ways again we saw that the opening to north korea some of the language you've already said that he used was pretty unusual in terms of the sort of diplomacy that we were used to pretty unexpected what in particular are you thinking about though there what was specifically achieved through trump's unpredictability in those four years it's a very long list but i'll I'll start with kind of what i think are the most dramatic examples right number one when president trump came in in his first meeting with president obama president obama told him that he thought the number one risk that America faced or the global risk was North Korea. And Trump did something very different. I write in the book about actually how we opened a back channel because the diplomatic channel was just going nowhere and how Trump was able to build a relationship with Kim Jong-un in order to de-escalate the situation. I also write about some conversations he had with the families of people who actually lost a son in North Korea because I felt like that was something that carried very heavy with him trying to figure out how to make that deal. But he saw that as a big priority for America to de-escalate that threat. The second biggest one, I think, was with China. But what specifically was achieved? You know, he met Kim Jong-un famously. He said some famous things about him. It was certainly an unpredictable thing. But but what was actually achieved there in terms of turning North Korea away from its aggressive posture, from its nuclear program? What, what do you think was actually achieved? So in North Korea, I think, number one, it was a massive de-escalation. Again, they were firing rockets. You know, I had friends calling me saying, I'm thinking of going to vacation in Hawaii. Is it safe to go there? Right. So we went from a place where there was a lot of trash talk to a place where basically it was de-escalated and there were steps being taken. Now, this is my personal point of view. Again, I know that you know Secretary Pompeo was lead on the negotiation, so he could probably describe better. But my sense is that Trump, A, opened up a bridge. I write about in our first meeting with President Xi, who I'll, I'll talk about in a minute, about how he basically said he didn't really know the young leader. He was fairly recluse. He said he knew his father. What happened there is we showed him that there's a lot of potential. I mean, North Korea has a ton of minerals. It has a lot of wealth as a country. But I think for him, the whole maneuver was how do you seize that economic potential without giving up kind of the one card that's essentially keeping people out of your country, right? So they look at what happened to Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein, and it's not an easy decision to give up the nukes. And I don't think that we created the right conditions ultimately. Again, I think with time, we got it to a pretty good place. The conversations were ongoing, but we were not able to get that final part of it done. But the de-escalation was a major thing, and it changed, I think, the way a lot of people in the world were thinking about the North Korea problem. And Trump did it by doing things that basically every diplomat told him not to do. And I think it was very successful in that regard. So you were going to talk about China. Again, Trump unquestionably took a very different approach with regard to China from previous presidents over the last 20 years or so. The tariffs, uh, a much more aggressive stance with regard to China's uh, trading approach and all the things that China's been criticized for. Instead of pursuing a policy of you know what other presidents, of course, strategic engagement, there was a more aggressive approach. What did those tariffs achieve? What did that approach to China achieve? I'll try to do these quickly because I want to go through China, Mexico, Iran as well, which I think were really the areas where he had big outcomes because of it. But basically with China, I write in my book, actually, uh, amazing scene that we have in our, our trade meeting, right? So Trump had a very different point of view on trade than a lot of the Republican orthodoxy. Actually, when he would get criticized for our trade deals in the Wall Street Journal editorial page, I said, well, if they were complimenting, that means we weren't doing your policy because there was like a fundamental difference in point of view between what was kind of the more corporate policy to have kind of distributed benefits from globalization versus his view, which is you need a much more concentrated cost and we need to protect our country's manufacturing base in different areas there. So I write in my book about how Bob Lighthizer really rose amongst all of the different trade advisors and He basically says, look, you know, we're doing this the same way that we've been doing it, that Bush did it, that Clinton did it, that Obama did it, where they just tap us along and then give us, you know, a couple symbolic wins. 
but they're not changing the paradigm. So when Trump did the tariffs, it was a major decision. I think Gary Cohn at the time told him it would blow up the whole economy. Mnuchin was against it. And what happened was is Trump basically said, let me see what happens. And he says, look, I've been saying this for 30 years. I campaigned on it. I promised I would do it. I won, and I'm going to see it through. And so he did it. The economy didn't blow up. We had a couple rough days in the market, but the next morning, the sun rose. Next evening, the sun set, and it worked out. And what happened was is it basically was just a massive game of poker with China, right? He put tariffs on some of their industries that were trying to steal essential industries from America. And then they hit back with very politically vulnerable areas, like hitting our farmers in, in swing states. And instead of kind of bowing down to that, Trump actually raised the ante and hit them with more tariffs. So that was something where they really thought that they knew that he wasn't going to be constrained by politics. And, you know, I think he was thinking long term, right? So so all of the pain that were felt. Didn't American farmers bear a large part of the cost of that? Uh, they did. And then it has to be bailed out by significant fiscal support. Well, it was actually net net profitable for America, right? He took a small percentage of the tariffs that he was collecting on China and then used it to subsidize the farmers for the pain that they were feeling because China was unfairly targeting them. By the way, the farmers said to him they don't want the aid, they'd rather produce more. But that was a card that they were willing to play. And Trump figured out how to not allow that to become a pain point that they could play. So he eliminated a strategic piece that they very successfully used time and time again. And again, just the short answer is, is that they didn't know how far he would go. And this whole thing was just a really big poker game. And ultimately, they made a lot of concessions. And I, I go through in the book, you know, a story about how China's not sure at the end of the day they wanted tariffs pulled off. And Trump's like, I'm just not doing it. And the conversation we basically have with the Chinese is to say, don't think about it in terms of tariff reduction. Think about all the different things you're going to buy from us in the context of now there will be no more escalation in tariffs. And that was essentially what they bought from us when they gave us all these new purchases and agreed to make some changes. What they essentially bought was that he wouldn't raise tariffs further. And so again, I think he played that very, very well. On that issue, again, we had no issues with Taiwan for four years. He was very clear with President Xi. He didn't want that to be a topic, and it wasn't a topic. I think if you go to Iran, that's probably the area where his unpredictability... Actually, I'll do Mexico quickly because it's the same thing, right? They, they, He actually was very close to putting tariffs on several times, and that, I wouldn't call it a threat of tariffs because he actually wanted to do it. That actually helped get the right concessions out of the Mexicans to help us make win-win deals to secure the border, and then also in order to get the trade deal that, that's going to bring back about a half a million jobs to America. It's, it's an incredible deal, the USMCA, best environmental standards, uh, intellectual property standards, you know, in any trade deal in history. But then finally, with Iran, this is one area where Trump used to say that Iran has never won a war, but they've never lost a negotiation. And they were just constantly, they had a very strong hand when we got into power. I think they were just given about $150 billion in access to their funds. They were using that to fund Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, who were causing instability all throughout the region. They were chanting death to Israel, death to America. They were working on ballistic missiles, and they still had a lot of their nuclear capabilities that they were keeping covertly. So Trump basically dismantled their economy. And then ultimately, I write about the decision he made to take uh, Soleimani off the board and how Iran's response to that was pretty non-existent in the scheme of what it could have been otherwise based on the fact that they really believed that he would have escalated further and he could have. But there was also times where Iran did things like shooting down an unarmed drone of ours where he was very close to retaliating and then didn't. So his unpredictability, I think, was a major strategic asset. And I think the results speak for themselves, right? When Trump ran, the media said that if he gets elected, he's going to start World War III. Again, no new wars. He made six peace deals. And then just the final one I should mention, too, is Russia, right? So Russia took Crimea in 2014. 
uh, and even under the umbrella of all this Russia investigation and the hoax that we've colluded with them, which turned out to be 100% false, Trump built a pretty decent relationship with Putin. I write about in my book, the OPEC plus oil deal that we did when COVID was rattling the markets. And I write about some discussions that Trump had with President Putin. One in particular that was really funny was Trump is kind of making small talk with him before we're getting to the meat of the deal. And he says to him, he says, you know, look, you're not nervous about China. A lot of your wealth is in the South. They got a lot of people. They may want to expand out of their real estate. And Putin, without missing a beat, turns to Trump and says, if I'm the one who should be nervous about my South, why are you the one building a wall on your Southern border? And so, you know, he kind of shot back at him pretty quickly. But, you know, Trump was trying to, I think, build a relationship with Russia so that we could try to divide them from China, which should have been a way to go. But the political environment really never created the opportunity for that. And again, now you have war with Russia and Ukraine, which I think was fully provoked by the current administration. Was you think that this administration is responsible for the war in Ukraine? I think that it absolutely could have been avoided. Again, I think they were there were certain lines we never crossed there to provoke them, but I do think that they did some very provocative things uh, in terms of you know saying they wanted Ukraine to join NATO. We never went that far. And then I think when Putin was amassing troops on the border, my sense is that he was basically saying, "Guys, I'm just not going to allow this to happen. I cannot allow for NATO to be in Ukraine." That would cause too many vulnerabilities for him from a defensive point of view. And he was amassing troops. I'm not sure he actually wanted to invade at the time, but I think that America then was releasing intel and Biden was getting up saying, he's going to invade, he's going to invade. My intel says, which I think was the wrong thing. He should have sent somebody quietly to say, okay, what's your issue? You got my attention. What can we do? And then he did something even worse, which is he says, and if he does invade, we're going to do absolutely nothing about it. We're staying out of the war. So I think it was very, very poorly handled by the U.S. And, and again, I will say it's been poorly handled by Europe, too. Like one thing Trump was mocked for was telling Europe, you've got to spend more on your defense and stop buying gas from Russia. because it's- But a lot of Republicans would say in defending the Trump administration from criticisms that it was too pro-Russian, which, you know, a lot of people did feel that the relationship, and you've helped to shed some light on that in the book and, and in this interview, that maybe that you're trying to prize Russia away from China was part of the objective. But, but in defending the Trump administration from the criticism that it was too pro-Russia, a lot of Republicans say, well, actually, the Trump administration with the Congress and the Trump administration signed, you know, massive military support to Ukraine, which the Obama administration had never, had not had resisted, so certainly lethal military support. So, but you're saying the Biden administration administration was provocative. But by that argument, wasn't giving Ukraine all that weaponry that the Congress voted for and that Trump signed, wasn't that also helping to you know defend Ukraine against Russia? I'll say that one of the things that influenced a lot of the actions I took was reading about World War One and thinking that a lot of it could have been avoided if people just picked up the damn telephone. And I know that that's an overly simplistic point of view, but you just had a series of events that kind of led to massive escalation. And I think that we did what we thought was necessary to create a balance of power. And I think that the policy was the correct policy, but we never said that they should be joining NATO because we always knew that would be a bridge too far for Russia. And we had active conversations with the Russians in order to figure out how to find areas of common interest. And and again, we proved that we can get a deal done with them with the OPEC plus deal. And the hope was is that we could find other ways. But Trump was very much into saying that foreign policy should be about finding areas of overlapping interests and then pursuing interests of America, which is 
again, keeping America safe and trying to keep the world safer. And then number two is creating economic opportunity for our people and for America. And so within that realm, any country was on the table and he was willing to talk to people because, again, his job wasn't to lecture the world. His job was to keep America safe and to try to create economic opportunities for the American people so that they can improve their quality of life. Hasn't Russia's behavior, though, especially in invading Ukraine, suggested that any idea that Russia could somehow be an ally of the U.S. and of Europe was illusory? Look, I don't think America has permanent allies, and I don't think America has permanent enemies, right? You think about who our strong allies are today. I'd be in Germany or I'd be in Japan, and then you go back, you know, 70 years. I mean, my grandparents were being slaughtered by the Germans, and you know, the Japanese were pretty vicious in World War II. And so I think that anything could change, and I think that you have to have that hope, right? What do we prove in the Abraham Accords, right? A lot of people in the foreign policy establishment come with very fixed mindsets, but from a business point of view, we were always trying to look at everything with a blank slate and say, what's the ideal? What should it be? And then try to maneuver variables in order to make that occur. And that's how we got the Abraham Accords done, right? I mean, the conventional thinking in Washington was that you, I mean, John Kerry said, you will not have peace between Israel and the Arabs until you make peace with the Israelis and the Palestinians. And by the way, not having any diplomatic experience, I initially accepted that notion. But then as I started talking to people, I basically said, this doesn't make any sense. And we pursued a different path and made a breakthrough. But I write in the book actually about interactions I had. So I write about how when I was rolling out the peace plan, Jim Baker brought the Russians into the process. I think when when he was doing the Madrid conference, so they had a stake in the Middle East peace process. So I asked John Huntsman, this is after we were cleared, I couldn't speak to the Russians for the first two years, but after the Mueller report came out and basically proved what I knew all along, which is that we had nothing to do with the Russians, Pompeo suggested I reach out to Huntsman, who was our ambassador, and called him and said, hey, you know, do they want to talk to us about it? And he basically said, you'll get one of two people from them. He says, if, if they want to just basically do nothing, then you'll get, you know, a guy from their foreign ministry. If, if they want to try to engage to build a good line of relationship, then you'll get this guy, Kirill Dimitriev. And I, I take us through kind of the, the secret meetings that I had with him. Obviously, I invited Matt Pottinger, who was then our deputy national security advisor along, and I warned him beforehand saying, just want you to know the last person who came with me to meet a Russian ended up with big legal fees. So I just want to make sure you're comfortable with this. But he thought it was good. And that channel turned out to be very productive. That's how we got the OPEC plus oil deal done during COVID when we were at our worst moments. I mean, the Russians sent over a big plane filled with ventilators and masks and supplies. And so I think that they do have a desire to have a good relationship with America. I think that if we did that, I think it'd be very good for America to do it. Again, having enemies is not a good thing. And we have to accept that different countries have different values. They're going to act in different ways, but we don't get to choose who runs different countries, right? We tried that. I mean, Bush tried that in the Middle East, and it was an unmitigated disaster for America. It was an unmitigated disaster you know, for tens of millions of people in the Middle East. And I think that what our job should be is to figure out how do we find common interests and, and pursue our interests with people. And then when we have disagreements, let's talk about them privately and try to resolve them. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll be talking more with Jared Kushner, author of a new book, Breaking History, his memoir of his days in the White House. Stay with us. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. 
Welcome back. I'm talking with Jared Kushner about his tumultuous four years in the White House. To what extent was a recognition by Arab countries, you know, it was UAE in particular, and then Bahrain and, and other countries too that came along later, of the threat of Iran, and that actually that those countries, the Arab countries and Israel, have a much higher stake and a much higher interest in terms of the existential threat potentially that a nuclear Iran could pose? And how much was it that that drove them together and essentially made them essentially say to the Palestinians, sorry, you know, you've got to sort that out yourself. We've got much bigger fish to fry here in the face of a common external threat. Right. So, so maybe it's because I'm, I'm not a politician. It's hard to ascribe percentages. And what was funny when I left my job in government was a lot of people asked me, well, how did the Abraham Accords get done? Why did get done. And, you know, I would see some people who were involved tangentially, like giving these very crisp answers for how it happened. But for me, it was just much more complicated and nuanced. And that was one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I wanted to show people how there was just a whole bunch of things coming together that we seized. We broke from a lot of conventional thinking. Again, for three years, I was criticized. You know, the New York Times would write nonstop editorials saying I should resign. I'm doing it wrong. I'm going to cause you know war in the Middle East. But everything we were doing was rational and logical. And we tried to pursue it in that way. And I joke that we succeeded on plan C, but only because we went through the alphabet three times and failed. And I write in the book about all the different things. It's almost like a treasure hunt where basically you're going to a place, you think there's a solution there, you find there's no solution there, but it gives you another learning that helps you go to another place. And then you go to that place and there's another solution there. There's one big breakthrough moment that I do think we had where I write about a dinner that I had with the Sultan of Oman, the former Sultan. He unfortunately passed away, Sultan Qaboos, where we're with him. And he says something to me that really resonated where he said, and this is after, you know, during like a 30 course dinner, I mean, it's, it's an opulent, incredible experience. And he was very wise. And he says, I feel badly for the Palestinian people that they carry with them the burden of the Muslim world. And I was reflecting on that. And I was saying to myself, like, who the hell elected, you know, a boss and his band of incompetent negotiators, who, by the way, have like a perfect track record in 25 years of not making a deal to represent the entire Muslim world on the mosque. And, you know, one thing I'd done previous in, in kind of my exploration phase is I commissioned some focus groups in Cairo, Amman, Dubai, and Ramallah to understand from the younger people what they thought the conflict was about. Because I'd meet with these experts and they would talk about issues of sovereignty, but it all felt to me very academic and non-pragmatic. And I just, again, when I was learning about the Middle East initially, all the experts were telling me, well, the real difference is between the Sunnis and the Shias. And when I got in there, I was like, I don't think that's really that big of a deal, right? In the sense that the difference I saw was leaders who wanted to give their younger population an opportunity for a better future and leaders who wanted to either scapegoat Israel or use religion to basically repress people to justify their stronghold on power, even though they were doing a crap job for their citizens, right? So the Sultan of Oman says that. And what I found from those focus groups was that all of the people who were non-experts on the issue basically thought that the mosque was under attack and that Israel was not allowing Muslims to pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is thought to be the third holiest site in Islam. Again, some of the books I'd read had actually given me historical context, where even if you go into like the 1920s, this is before Israel was a state, there was a guy who was basically was like the Grand Mufti there, a guy, Haj al-Husseini, who basically did the same thing, right? So he would build these militias and he would use it to raise money from Indonesia and all over the world, saying the mosque is under attack, the Zionists are coming to destroy the mosque. And so it wasn't like a new routine. And I kind of realized that it was two separate issues, right? So the whole modern Middle East is essentially arbitrary lines drawn by foreigners, right? You go back to Sykes-Picot early on. And 
there's really no historical precedent where there's been three offensive wars that have been lost, and then you still have a claim to territory that was given up in that regard. And so the whole thing felt like a manufactured situation. And then when I looked at the Palestinian leadership, again, like, you know, Bibi Netanyahu, who ran a military superpower, an economic superpower in Israel, he'd fly to Washington to see us. He'd fly on like an LL commercial jet. The leader of this refugee group, Abbas, he'd fly, he'd fly in a $60 million BBJ, private jet. And then I'd meet with him and he'd put a cigarette in his mouth and somebody would come over and light the cigarette. I mean, the guy lived like a king, still lives like a king. And so the whole thing didn't make any sense. And so we basically split it into the Arab-Israeli conflict and let the Israeli-Palestinian conflict basically be a border dispute. And then you know, I write different steps we took that basically expose the fact that the leadership of the Palestinians wasn't even interested in really improving the lives of their people, right? We held an economic conference in Bahrain that the media called a failure because the Palestinian leadership didn't allow people to go. They basically handed out leaflets saying, we have bullets reserved for any Palestinian businessman that comes. And this conference was, you know, we had Steve Schwartzman, Masasan, all the finance ministers. Everyone was there to basically say, we're looking to invest. We want to help the Palestinian people. But our biggest problem isn't Israel. Our biggest problem is there's no rule of law. There's fear of terrorism. There's no property rights. You don't have good governance. And so if they fix those issues, then we'll invest and like, to fix it, I mean, it's it's 5 million people, right? So for, I think it was like 27 billion, which is, isn't that much, like in the scheme of global finance, you could basically create a million jobs, reduce their poverty rate in half. I mean, I released 180 pages in that plan and nobody criticized any of the details. But the media in the Middle East was incredible on it because it basically had everyone questioning the Palestinian leadership saying, these guys are offering them the deal of a lifetime to improve the lives for their citizens. And these guys are criticizing this. It makes no sense. So anyway, so it was a lot of different things. I really tried to, in the book to give people an understanding of all the things we learned along the way that ultimately led through the breakthrough. But the breakthrough has been amazing. And it gives me so much satisfaction today as a private citizen seeing you know, the flights going back and forth. Every day there's new business deals announced. There's you know, photos on Instagram of Muslims now praying at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is debunking the false narrative that a lot of the jihadists have tried to use to recruit youth for many years. So it's really changed the game. And, and I do think it's just going to continue to build in a very spectacular way. Let's move on. A couple of other things I do want to ask you about. And the COVID response, again, you were very much involved in that, both the initial response and the concerns and the problems over PPE, you know, protective equipment and testing. And then, of course, Operation Warp Speed that led to the very quick development of the vaccines. Go into a lot of that in the book. And I don't want to get into too much of that. For this the purposes of this conversation, there's a lot of discussion going on now about what we got right and what we got wrong with regard to dealing with the pandemic. And I think there's a growing view that maybe the, you know, the, the kind of the lockdown approach, uh, which many parts of the country face, not, and you know, initially there was a lot of uncertainty and I know the administration was going through that as well at the time. But as you look back two and a half years later and you look at what's happened, both in terms of the progress of COVID itself, but also of the differential effects of different parts of the country, the economy, schooling, what's happened to our kids, things like that. Do you think that the country as a whole has learned maybe that if this happened again, we would and we should do things differently? So there is a shocking amount of unwillingness right now, I think, by the government to really face up to where our deficiencies are and then to think through how we can do it. I mean, they're holding hearings now on Jan 6. They should be holding hearings on how do we get ourselves better prepared for a future pandemic. You know, again, I write about some of these things in the book, but some of these things I didn't go into, but like the CDC is 11,000 people, but it's operationally incompetent, right? I mean, you could probably run that place with 
like, you know, maybe a dozen people and, and maybe do it better. I mean, it's a place that has no operational capability. You look at Fauci and a lot of these other doctors, they're very academic oriented and grant oriented, but they have no operational skill. Again, you know, Burks actually was pretty good because she'd been on the ground in Africa. So she was very good at identifying where the real problems were. Uh, and helping us mobilize towards it. What we did is we brought a real private sector mindset to it. And again, first of all, most of our medical system isn't either not-for-profit or private sector. A lot of, no, it's really only the paying that the federal government has a big role in and some of the regulations, but we did a ton of deregulation. And then we used the private sector. So like even for ultimate for the vaccination and the testing, one of the ideas that our team had was to let CVS, Walgreens, Walmart do it. There's actually an amazing scene in the book where we were doing that and then some of the CEOs start saying, wait, can you give us a, a liability waiver? And we're totally just making this stuff up as we went along. And it's like, look, we, we don't have that authority to do that. And that will slow us down. And Doug McMillan from Walmart was on the phone and says, look, Walmart's willing to take the risk. Our country needs us. We're going to step up. And there was time and time again. I mean, even an example like you know, when we finally, we, we were with under a week away from running out of masks in the country. We identified, we used the DPA with 3M. I write about this in the book. It was pretty crazy. But then we called Fred Smith from FedEx and David Abney from UPS and said, look, I need to borrow your planes. And they're like, we're your Air Force. Like, no problem, anything you need. And David Abney told me a couple months later, that he'd never seen anything like it in his life. As quickly as we could land planes, he would have them filled up and send them right back. And it, it was incredible. And then with the vaccine, a lot of the lessons, I, I write about testing, how we were going to ramp up much faster, but our stockpile was pretty low. And they come in, we had a plan to roll out to about 400 locations. And it was really going well. We got a nice editorial in the Wall Street Journal about the change in pace, which I mentioned in the book. And then they come into my office and say, look, we only have 1.2 million swabs in the country. And so I said, well, man, so now how many can we do? Like 37. And so what I realized is like the biggest bottleneck was going to be the lowest cost item. And because of basically Q-tips, we weren't going to be able to get all the testing we needed. And so we learned from that. And that's how we got warp speed right, which is from that moment, we started procuring or manufacturing everything we thought we would need for all the different variations of an ultimate vaccine, which is why, again, once we got our phase three approval, we were so far developed in the advancement. I write about how actually I got a call from Ken Griffin in April saying, look, one of the best investments you can ever make is start doing the manufacturing simultaneously with your phase three and pick a bunch of candidates. And then obviously I write about just the process of warp speed coming together, how we kept all the bureaucracy out of the way, worked with the private sector, the military, an amazing gentleman named Monsef Slaoui, who's an incredible doctor, came in and helped us do the candidate selection. And yeah, and we got that right. And again, the Lancet had a study that showed that that saved over 20 million lives. But I think that when the Biden administration was taking over, and again, we did a lot of transition work with them to give them, now they had a big stockpile, they had a ton of vaccines, we had a whole plan for distribution, which was based on all the learnings from either mistakes that we'd made or, or things that we'd learned. But it was kind of like, okay, let's get these like business guys out of the way, like the professionals are back in charge. And that's really what a lot of the federal government is, is you have a lot of experts who aren't willing to take control for things and just the systems are not designed to move fast and they're not capable right now to deal with quick operations. And look, you saw that with the Afghanistan disaster, right? Things were going wrong in our administration. First of all, that never would have happened. But again, we had that, I think, in a fairly stable place and would have been better prepared. But then when there was a chaos, everyone was running away from the problem. And then again, nobody got fired. Nobody took blame. Nobody was held accountable. And it was a disaster. I must push you on that. You said Afghanistan was relatively calm, but it was your administration that did the deal that basically allowed the Taliban to take over again. No, again, we made a deal with the Taliban that led to, I think it was like 12 or 13 months where there was no American soldiers killed for, I think that was the longest period that we'd had since we entered the country. Okay. 
President Trump spoke to the head of the Taliban, again, because he was willing to do that. And by the way, we found the head of the Taliban easier to negotiate with than Ghani. I mean, Ghani was corrupt as hell. He was an academic. He would have, you know, 40 people with him at every meeting, like no decisions could get made. But they were trying to keep the game going. Again, Trump didn't create the situation there, but he was trying to figure out what a good end state could be. And, and Mike Pompeo and uh, Zal Khalizad, our negotiator, and they made a deal where they basically said to the Taliban, like, look, you know, we're going to keep you guys in decent shape, but this is the deal. Don't cross this line. And, you know, no killing Americans, no trash talking America. And, and we're going to be okay. And if you guys do it, we're going to come back with more bombs and just blow the hell out of you. We know where you guys are. We know where your families are. But again, you go back to unpredictability. They feared Trump and they respected Trump. And then the Biden administration, then they're, they're giving deadlines, they're moving things up, they're clearing out Bagram Air Base, like, you know, just the stuff made no sense. And they tried to blame it on the Trump deal, but the Trump deal was not executed in any way, shape or form near where it is. Biden was telling us a month before, no, it's going to hold. He was telling us right before, you know, the Afghan army's doing just fine. I mean, what happened there was one of the most incompetent things that I think we've ever seen in our country. And I think that weakness is what emboldened Russia and what emboldened China to be more provocative with Taiwan. But none of that happened. I mean, again, say what you want about Trump. You like him, you didn't like him, you liked his tweets, you didn't like his tweets. For four years, the foreign world was much more stable. It's not like he inherited a great world too. Again, ISIS had a caliphate the size of Ohio. You know, you had all of these, you know, allies feeling betrayed by us. So, you know, again, Russia invaded Crimea, you know, before Trump came in. And uh, he came in and, and we had four years of relative stability. And again, you know, I write in my book about a lot of his discussions with foreign leaders, how he managed these things. And again, I think that most people don't have this point of view because they've just gotten the point of view from the media, which is why I felt like it was important to write this book. Because again, whether you like Trump or don't like Trump, it's probably interesting to have a different perspective. And again, everything I've put in there is backed up by fact. It's well-researched and nothing's been disproven in it because it's all the truth. And again, the results are the results, right? You know, no new wars, great economy, uh, fastest vaccine in history. Those things don't happen by accident. I want to talk about the end of the Trump administration, obviously, what happened. You talk a little bit about this in the book. I know you were traveling on January the 6th, so, you know, you were actually out of the country. But let's talk just about the post-election itself. You say in the book, and I've read it, that you think there were some questionable things that went on in the election that should have been properly investigated. But do you think, and I don't see this in the book, I don't see a clear statement of this, do you think the election was stolen? So I think I'm very clear in the book about my point of view, which is that it was a very sloppy election. A lot of rules were changed at the last minute to basically enable, like, you know, tons of mail-in ballots. You know, you had a lot of things that happened that were statistical anomalies. But, you know, look, my sense was, is, you know, Trump turned out a tremendous amount of votes. I think ultimately it was a very close election. I think it was 44,000 votes. And then, you know, once that happened, you know, Trump chose how he wanted to challenge it. You know, again, Hillary challenged the 2016 election. Trump had his lawyers take that process. I chose not to be involved in that process, but instead focused in the last three months on trying to get things done. And, you know, we got done the deal with Morocco, which was surprising to people, getting another peace deal done, a lame duck period. We got the deal resolved between Qatar and the Gulf Rift with Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. Again, that's where I was on Jan 5th. That was like an intense 72 hours. I write about in the book that deal almost died several times. And most importantly, I was focused at the time on the vaccine, you know, making sure we were doing a good rollout. And again, if Trump's legal challenges were successful, then great. If they weren't, I wanted to make sure that the great work we did to create warp speed wasn't going to miss beats. We were working with Jeff Zients uh, at the time to make sure that he had full visibility. Again, it was very insulting when Kamala Harris and Biden come in, oh, they left us a mess with the vaccines. We had an amazing plan. And what they did was basically just follow our plan. And we 
left them with a lot of ways to implement just, it. Just to be clear, Jared, you don't seem to be saying the election was stolen. You don't think Biden was illegitimately elected. What I say is, again, I, I think people use different words. And again, the media tries to like hone in on kind of that one word, one way or the other. I mean, I think it's the same word that Hillary Clinton used in 16. And what, what I basically say is it was a sloppy election. But, you know, for me, I worked on transition of power. And again, I'm very proud of all the accomplishments that occurred in the Trump administration, which I think people try to overlook because of what happened after the election. You think Trump was let down by that team around him? You're very critical of a lot of people in the book. Steve Bannon, you're critical of Chris Christie, Rex Tillerson, Rez, others. I'm wondering, that team that he assembled after the election or that was around after the election to challenge the election results, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, John Eastman, do you think Trump was badly advised by them? So I don't think in the book I'm critical of people. I, I really just try to give what my experience is and I try to just show people who they were, what they said. And, you know, it's funny, some people think I should have been tougher on some people, less tough on other people. I was just sharing my experience. But after the election, yeah, I, I think that that was not, as I told President Trump at the time, that wasn't the team that I would have hired to uh, to make legal arguments for me. It does look pretty likely that President Trump is planning to run again. Obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of water to flow under a lot of bridges with legal procedures and primaries and everything else. Do you expect him to run again? And if so, do you expect him to win? Look, I think he's very bothered by what he's seeing happening in the country. Again, you know, he left a peaceful world and he left an economy that was poised to boom. And now we've got record inflation. Gas prices are high. It's really hurting the working class, the policies they put in place. And then you have war. And, and he knows that he could fix a lot of these things very quickly, whether it was you know working with China or Russia to, to resolve these issues. But I think that it bothers him to see. So I, I know that he's, you know, obviously very seriously considering it. But I, I think that if he does, you know, again, you know, the media has liked to count him out many, many times, but he's hard to bet against. You know, he tends to find ways to win. you be there if he does run again? Will he be there as in his campaign? And then should he get another term? Will you serve as you did in the first term? So right now I'm loving, you know, my life in the private sector. I write in the book about how hard it was and again, it was an amazing opportunity. So proud of all the things we accomplished. But it takes a big toll on you, a big toll on your family. Now I'm able to make my kids breakfast every morning. I, I have a much better relationship with them. And I love being in the private sector. Again, I, I don't think in our country you should try to become a career political person. I think that the goal should be like our founding fathers wanted. You know, you, you should be on your farm, go serve, and then go back to your farm. And so right now, my, my mindset's in the private sector. But obviously, I respect my father-in-law, and I would definitely support him in the way that a family member should. Your father-in-law isn't going to emulate George Washington and go back to the farm, is he? I think that he feels like he's got a lot of unfinished business. I really do hope people read this book because they'll see that there was a tremendous amount of good that happened during the Trump administration, whether it was the deregulation, the energy independence, the trade deals were incredible, the people deals were incredible. And again, Trump is a different kind of person, but I think because he was different, that's why he got so much done. And he increased the metabolism of government and was tremendously effective at it. And I say that, you know, the first night he ever slept in Washington, he slept in the White House, right? He was never a mayor or a governor or a senator. And it took him a couple of years to really figure out how to make the place really worked. I think towards the end, he was just getting better and better at the job. And I do think that he thinks he could solve a lot of these problems very easily. So I think that that's where his mindset is right, right now. Jared Kushner, thank you very much indeed. The book is Breaking History, a White House memoir. It's out. And thank you very much indeed, Jared, for joining us and for talking about that and so much else. Jared Kushner, thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Great to be with you. That's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks very much for listening. Please join us again next week for another exploration of these big issues driving our world. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.